This morning, we continue our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Early on in the series, we were laying foundation, uh, pointing out that Paul was talking about a new identity in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe in him as Lord and Savior, you're a new creation, Paul says. This is who you are, chapters 1 through and 3. But then in chapter 4, there's a transition in the very first verse. Paul says, I urge you then to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And to describe that life worthy of a calling, Paul progresses from that point on through uh, into chapter 6, and we're in the middle of this right now. He, he points to unity in love. He points to the exercise of spirit gifts for the health of the church. He points to the importance of a renewed mind. And then he points to separation from sin as consistent with a life of identity, a new identity in Christ. We're in the midst of this set fourth section. We'll introduce a, a last theme in a couple of Sundays, but um, let's keep marching through, starting to pick up in Ephesians 5.15. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we long to, we need to understand what your will is. Without your will, we are aimless. Without your will, we are lost. We will move towards death. But with the light of life, we stand to inherit all things. So, Holy Spirit, Open our eyes and enable us to hear your voice. Speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Start this morning with, there is a season. Words from an old song. If you, if you ever wonder what people think about time, the best place to, to inquire is not some pop psychology journal, or a philosophical blog written by one of your favorite authors. It's the biblical book of Ecclesiastes. And in particular, chapter 3, the inspiration and the words for that 1960s hit song, Turn, Turn, Turn. Ecclesiastes 3.1 starts, There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. The book of Ecclesiastes actually starts deep in frustration. The writer says, everything is meaningless, and then proceeds to say this, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. More verses about cycles, on and on, and then verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. 
There is nothing new under the sun. It's a philosophical, frustrating statement about the endless cycles of life and all for what? That question hangs in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's not a foreign idea. It's not deep philosophy that we don't tend to think about. We, we think about time all the time. There's a sense of tyranny over our lives when it comes to time. And it has changed since the, the, the typical life of ancient people who lived according to long cycles of time like sunrise to sunset and had a, a decent idea of where they were in that day relative to sunrise and sunset, but, but the chunks of time were large. People of old didn't hear the sound of each second ticking away. Some of you young people don't even know what a clock on the wall with a second hand looks like and sounds like. But uh, ancient man had no trains to catch, no... Um, exact deadlines to meet, did not set an alarm clock for 6.03 a.m. because that was the precisely calculated time in order to roll out of bed after hitting one snooze, no more, showering, dressing, grabbing and going and making it to wherever you needed to go on a weekday, workday, school day. Today, time is in your face all the time, everywhere. It's on your computer when you log in. Uh, on the way, it was on the, the bank sign telling you time and temperature. It was on the train platform when you were wondering where it was. And it's on your smartphone when you check email and back on your wrist now that there are smartwatches. The tyranny of time, though, is not a modern invention that we can blame on technology. Plautus was a Roman playwright living during the 3rd century B.C., who experienced his own angst at technology. This is what he wrote, the gods confound the man, he's frustrated, who has cut and hacked my days so wretchedly into small pieces, confound him who in this place set up a sundial. <laughs> we think it was curious. He saw it as his smartphone demanding that every moment of every day be accounted for. The tyranny of time is not a new thing. Maybe it's increased with the advance of technology, but it hangs over every part of our lives, every moment of our day. That leads us to ask the question, secondly, when are we? When are we? Here's the flow of thought back in Ephesians chapter 5. Look up in verse 8. Paul says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is who you are. Verse 11, have nothing to do with darkness. Put it away. Expose darkness. Verse 15, be careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, which leads us to verse 16, the focus of this morning. Some translations put it this way. Make good use of the time. Our New International Version translation says, making the most of every opportunity. Both accurately capture what Paul is getting at here. The words are literally redeeming the time. Why is Paul so urgently focused on the time? He continues, because the days are evil. Because time is running short. 
because eternity hangs in the balance. The stakes are higher than ever. You know, a baseball game in May right now might extend into the bottom of the ninth with uh, the outcome hanging in the balance of what the Yankees do when they come up to bat. And it's dramatic. But no baseball game in May is anything like a baseball game in October when you win or go home during the playoffs. Everything is at stake. Time is short. You turn on the cooking channel, the food network, two chefs are going to battle it out. And when the clock starts, they're bantering with the hosts. They're proud to explain how they're going to prepare their protein, how their complex sauce brings out the freshest of ingredients. They're seasonal. But when the host says, five minutes, there's no more chatting. They stop talking. They start running. They bark orders to their teammates if it's a team competition. Sweat beads start rolling down their forehead because time is short, and it makes all the difference in the world. It's one thing when you're 11 years old, carefree, spending an entire summer afternoon doing absolutely nothing. And it's okay because you'll figure out life later. It's okay to just be a kid. But but if you're 35 or 40 years old and you have no idea what to do in life and you have no means to support yourself and you're wondering whether you should go back to school to gain some skills and you don't know where you fit in family and friendship and society the tyranny of time takes on a whole different meaning. Time feels much shorter. Paul's not talking about, though, where on the timeline of zero to 80, average lifespan today, he's not worried about where you fall, how much more life you have to live, whether you'll have an opportunity to, be, to grow in financial freedom and, and get married and have kids and raise a family. He, he's not focused on that at all. When are we? If we ask that question, Paul is talking about the grains of sand in the cosmic hourglass draining out and getting closer to empty. And he notes as a sign that it's getting close, that the battle between good and evil is intensifying. The days are evil. Later on, at the end of um, Ephesians chapter 6, he'll he'll write this, Therefore, verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, the day, you may be able to stand your ground. The day of evil is the last day when time ends because Jesus is coming back. And on the timeline of all human history, not the timeline of our little lives, 80 years on average, on the timeline of all of human history, the New Testament writers consistently tell us that we are in the last days. Paul knew he was in the last days 2,000 years ago. Hasn't come yet. For all we know, it'll be another 2,000 years. It's sort of like if you're a soccer fan, you know about stoppage time. You know that the professional soccer match goes 90 minutes, And at 90, everyone's still playing. 
There's a plus sign on the scoreboard at the top, and there's an estimate that says maybe four minutes, okay? It's extra time because some guy on one of the teams was pretending to be hurt for far longer than he should have been. That, that's how soccer accounts for flopping, okay? But as a soccer fan, you kind of have a sense, and if you're in the lead, you're just rooting for the end of the game. Cosmically speaking, we have no idea how much more stoppage time there will be. Only the divine referee knows when he blows that whistle. Actually, it'll be a, a trumpet, and the archangel will blow it, marking the end of all of human history, the last day. Until then, you keep playing because you don't know. What do you keep doing? You keep living a life worthy of the calling you've received, chapter 4, verse 1. You keep growing in your ability to live as the children of the light to produce the fruit of the light, Ephesians 5, verses 8 and 9. You keep on being careful then how you live, our passage this morning, verse 15, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time, the, the Greek word behind the, uh, the, the English redeeming is used in the New Testament to describe the redeeming, saving work of Jesus Christ. And the root word, um, this, this is a long word like this big, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Um, the root word was a simple Greek word that was used to describe um, the, the making of a transaction, buying things in the marketplace, purchasing things. So the, the substitute death of Christ at the heart of Christianity, at the, the heart of the gospel of salvation, is Jesus Christ in his death making a payment in order to free us from slavery to sin. So redemption was uh, used as a, as a term to refer to the, the payment made to um, satisfy the debt that a bondservant or a slave in the first century owed to the person they were serving, and now they were free. The payment Jesus makes at the heart of the gospel frees us from slavery to sin, frees us to serve him. This is what Paul is saying here. Um, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, you are not your own. You were bought marketplace transaction word, you were bought at a price, and the highest possible price at that, the life of God the Son, Jesus himself. The urgency of these last days is so high that Paul uses this word tied in with the heart of salvation and applies it to time. If we could paraphrase, it might go something like this. About time, which is running short, because the last day is coming. About time, buy it back for freedom. Gain as much of it as you can in order to do the work of the king, in order to produce this fruit of goodness, righteousness, and truth, up in verse 9. And in order to get a better sense of, of why Paul says that, we need to back up a little bit and see what the Bible in general has to say about 
this idea of time, this reality of time. We could easily start in the first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, in creation, and note that time itself is created in the separation of day and night. Here's the first cycle. And at the end of the creation week, we see time set apart, sanctified, declared holy for a particular purpose, because God had worked days one through six, and now He rests day seven. It's set apart for a sacred purpose, time, that is. One day in seven to rest. Why? The Ten Commandments show up in two places, and in one place it says, because God did, parentheses, who do you think you are to not need one day in seven to rest like God did? And the other place, Deuteronomy chapter 5, it says, set apart one day in seven to rest and to worship, which is the most restful, soul-renovating activity we could engage in, because you're not slaves anymore. Because you've been set free. Slaves work 24 hours, seven days a week, 365. You're not slaves anymore. Free people have a day off. That's why you set apart time in Sabbath. Sabbath is such a core part of the, the, the pattern of imitating a holy God different than any other so-called God. Sabbath is such a core part of this that throughout the, New Test- throughout the Old Testament, it is one of the most diligently, emphatically stressed pieces of the law that mark out God's people from everyone else. You maintain the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Holy doesn't mean sort of special and, and religious and clean. Holy means different. One day in seven is different for rest and worship. Why? Because God did it, because you're not slaves anymore. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, heaven, the glory that is to come, is described as the Sabbath rest that still remains. Sabbath, biblical view of time, is all over the place. Another place we could go to in the Bible to build our understanding of time is Psalm 39. Here's what David writes. Show me, Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. Um, Hold that thought. Put it alongside this. I was not an English class scholar in high school, but one uh, scene, quote, struck a chord in my 16-year-old brain, not yet a believer in Jesus Christ in high school. Macbeth, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying Nothing. Whether it's King David or Shakespeare, whether it's the inspired Word of God, Psalm 39, or inspired literature among the best humanity has ever produced, these thoughts are consistent. Our lives are this little puff of activity. In the scheme of eternity, 
our lives hardly make a splash in the pond. They're a dot. And that awareness needs to cultivate, if we're honest with ourselves, if we, if we have a sense of where we stand relative to everything else that has ever existed and ever will, that thought should, should cultivate in us a deep humility, a sense of smallness as created beings dependent on the Creator who himself is not limited by time, is not bounded by time. He created time, and therefore he stands outside of time. And that humility should lead to another truth. Each of us has 24 hours in the day, right? We, we, we say that, we hear that, but time ultimately does not belong to us. It's not a possession we have to spend as we please, biblically speaking, to satisfy our own little fiefdoms and our own preferences for the day or the year. Time ultimately belongs to the king, Look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 9. In their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. And that plays with Psalm 139, verse 16, just after the quote from the Lighthouse video. Your eyes, God, saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All of my days. In Psalm 90, one last place we'll look in the Old Testament, Moses writes this, and he says to God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Look, if God told you how many days you had, number your days. In other words, how many left you had, because you know how old you are, and you can subtract, don't you think you'd live differently? Don't you think you'd wake up every single moment, roll out of bed with purpose, determined not to waste one of the few, whether it's five or 500 you have left? When time is short, everything changes. Numbering your days is biblical stewardship of time. It's managing uh, this precious gift that God has given. It's making the most of every opportunity. Not in some time management guru kind of thing, but living for the glory of the king. Psalm 90 tells us this is the heart of biblical wisdom. Seeing time as a gift from God to be used to magnify the glory of God. One last look at the Bible's view of time. Uh, sometimes we use this phrase, the time is ripe for. And my assumption is it comes from an agricultural background. You know, harvest time. The farmer knows when the time is ripe to harvest the crop, bring it to market. It's still fresh at the peak of its flavor or whatever. Um, if you've ever had the privilege of picking ripe fruit off the tree, it tastes so much different than when you grab it from the grocery store and bring it home. The time is ripe for harvest. If the Old Testament was pregnancy, the New Testament is birth in the coming of the salvation plan in the person of Jesus Christ. 
that, those two ideas play with what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4. But when the time had fully come, other translations put it this way, in the fullness of time, I don't mean this in a light way, when a woman is ready to give birth, she's pretty full, the fullness of her womb. In the fullness of time, at, at the appointed time, at the set time, when the time is ripe, God sent the Son. Born of a woman, born under law, to redeem, there's that marketplace verb again, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sonship. When the time had fully come, Paul also writes in Romans, you see, at just the right time, when the time was ripe, at the appointed time, in the fullness of time, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. He entered time and space with precise timing. Here's the Bible's perspective on time in a nutshell. God created time. And he gives it to his people as a gift. Time is on the move. It's not something just given to you to use as you please that day. It's on the move, advancing from beginning to end with purpose. And the climax is on the very last day when Jesus comes back and judges and brings his people to be with him. Until then... We're called to steward, to wisely manage this gift that has been given to us, to use it, to enjoy it, to share it according to the wisdom of God, live not as unwise but as wise for the glory of God. That brings us lastly to make the most, as the NIV puts it, making the most of every opportunity. I'd suggest this. Making the most of every opportunity, redeeming the time, starts with asking God, what time is it? What time is it? And part of the answer is going to be what the New Testament consistently lays out for us, which is, in a nutshell, it's time to get ready because Jesus is coming back. What time is it, God? It's time to get ready. It's time to be prepared. There's an urgency in these last days, especially when it comes to reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ who are far from Jesus, who are lost. In, in the twin letter, if you will, to Ephesians, which is Colossians, in chapter 4, Paul uses the same phrase. He says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, those who are far from Christ. Make the most of every opportunity. redeeming the time so that you may know how to answer everyone, so that you will have words of grace to speak to outsiders, to those who don't need, know Jesus, about Jesus. There's an urgency. We don't know how much stoppage time there will be. A British historian wrote this, every instant of time becomes more momentous than ever. Every instant is eschatological. Big word, the, the study of end times. Last days, okay? Every instant is eschatological, or as one person has put it, like the point in the fairy tale where the clock is just about to strike 12. Talk about time is short. 
talk about the fullness pregnancy of time about to deliver something at midnight. If you're Cinderella and it's 11.59 p.m., time is short. There is no time to play around. You need to be about your business, which for her was hightailing at home before the mirage came crashing down, or so she thought. So often we want to freeze time. We want to capture this idyllic moment, bottle it up, and pictures and videos help us sort of retain the, the, the taste in our mouths a little bit longer than we used to be able to, easily at least. Maybe for some of you, it's, you, you want to stop the aging process. You wish we, you could be 10 years uh, younger than you are today and look like that, but you know that's not possible. So you want to, you want to freeze this moment in time so that you at least look this good for the rest of your life. To forever be Cinderella. It's too late, David. I'm sorry, Mo. <laughs> you want to forever be Cinderella at the ball. To have that moment in the spotlight. L- listen to Ecclesiastes 3.11. It's after the turn, turn, turn lyrics. The writer says this of God, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Instead of engineering this ideal moment and trying to preserve it, freeze it, a life of faith instead involves tracing out and following divine purpose that is advancing the story of the world and your little life along the way from beginning to end. Instead of trying to freeze that moment, it's, it's living in, in God time, real time, as the divine author unfolds the narrative of the world and your life. Yes, with twists and turns. Yes, with sometimes tragedy. Um, sometimes joy in bringing all things to consummation in his perfect wisdom and love for his children. The writer of Ecclesiastes says he doesn't know what God is doing from beginning to end. But we know because it's been revealed to us. This is how Ephesians began. Chapter 1, verse 10, Paul wrote that God's will is to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. When the fullness of time when this pregnancy is about to deliver the fruit of the womb. God's will is to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Ecclesiastes author, I don't know what God's been doing from beginning to end. Paul says, let me tell you, in the fullness of time to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth together under one head who is Jesus God says, that's what I've been up to. That's the work I've begun in you. That's the work I will complete in you. Time is short. Are you making the most of every opportunity? Are you ready? Being Cinderella at the ball for the night might be glorious, but it ultimately doesn't mean anything if you are destined to return to a life of drudgery as a nobody. 
But if, even in your drudgery, even in your waiting, even in your suffering, the bridegroom promises you that you will be his and that he will be yours, then every moment in life becomes pregnant with incredible anticipation and significance. Because the end will come. The days are short. Time is running out. Are you making the most of every opportunity waiting for that day? Or have you been betrothed to Jesus through faith in him? Or are you simply treating every 24-hour increment as yours to do with as you please? You'll never succeed in mastering all of your time and getting everything done. Something will interrupt. Your weaknesses and lack of wisdom will come into play. But that is not why God has given you the gift of time to, to become some sort of savior or to make a name for yourself. You and I live lives that are mere breaths, puffs of activity that afterwards, short of what God is doing, will have no lasting significance. But we are given, through faith in Jesus, the privilege to serve the King to whom time belongs as we live as children of light, last Sunday's text, exposing darkness, which is fruitless, nothing in the womb of darkness. And as we boldly proclaim that the King has come in time and space and is coming again at the end of time, all while being filled with the Holy Spirit. Next week's passage. See you next Sunday. Let's pray. God, you are the author of history. We are living in the greatest drama ever told. And through faith, you give us the immense privilege of taking part in what you're doing, in saving others as we have been saved, as your mouthpiece, as your ambassador, as your instrument, in proclaiming the realities of these milestones in all of time, creation, fall, redemption, Jesus coming, dying, rising, and Jesus coming again. We long for that day. Until then, grant us grace by your Spirit to redeem every moment, to live for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.